Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Ferenc Lotto, and I have the pleasure, special pleasure of hosting Charlotte Wiedemann today. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. It's terrific. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us at Revdan. Charlotte Wiedemann is a traveling freelance foreign reporter based in Germany who works mostly on Muslim societies in North and West Africa and the Western parts of Asia, the part of the world we often refer to as the Middle East. She has published books on a host of interesting and important subjects in the German language, such as Eurocentrism, race relations and post-colonialism, at times treating these subjects also from a more personal and autobiographical angle, as well as other books on fascinating countries such as Iran or Mali. Charlotte Wiedemann's newest book in the German language, her seventh in total, is entitled Den Schmerz der Anderen Begreifen, Holocaust und Weltgedächtnis, which might be translated into English as to comprehend and recognize the pain of others, Holocaust and global remembrance. This new and original collection offers highly stimulating interventions into contemporary discussions and debates on what to remember and on how to remember in the first place. I was personally very impressed by the insights and the arguments that this collection offers. Now, this new book of yours, Charlotte, reflects on and also critiques the reigning economy of empathy, especially when it comes to the current regime of memory and recognition. And it seems to me that you intend to show through a number of powerful examples how recognition depends on a sense of proximity and on a sense of connection. And so recognition, in fact, remains highly unevenly distributed today. Our own pain is recognized before the pain of others would even be considered, you underline. And so, of course, very much depends on who we consider part of the we group. So which are some of the examples you would care to highlight to expose this glaring inequality of empathy and recognition that is in place? And more generally, how would you briefly characterize the reigning memory regime when it comes to historical injustices. Okay, so let's start with empathy. Um, I think to become aware of what steers our empathy individually, but more important collectively, opens doors, um, doors to a more inclusive commemoration culture, as well as to a more, well, let's say, just approach to human rights issues of the present. So I start with the example of the Ukrainian war refugees. Um, and I do this from the German perspective. So until the beginning of the Russian invasion, Ukrainians in Germany were cheap workforce in underpaid jobs, particularly as um, nurses to care for the very old ones in, in German private homes or um, for work on, on strawberry fields. So they had no voice and no lobby. In short, they didn't belong to us, to our we group. So now the picture has changed entirely since uh, the German public and, and, and the media considers Putin's war uh, to be a war against us, the West. Uh, the refugees belong to us. They are part of our we group. And they are allowed to work and have access to, to social security benefits, um, quite different from uh, the Syrian refugees who arrived um, in, in the recent past in, in Germany. So empathy is steered by political assumptions. And these assumptions make victims similar to us, or they can make them unsimilar, alien. So Currently, we, we witness a, a mind-blowing contrast um, within EU between the friendly treatment of these huge numbers of Ukrainian refugees. And, and I should add, I'm, I'm really glad about this friendly welcome. 
And on the other side, the cruel treatment of small numbers of refugees at the Polish-Belarus border. So the latter are the aliens, weapons of a dictator to destabilize EU, as it is um, put, and therefore do not deserve any empathy. Babies die in the border forest and we do not care. But I think it is important we should not confuse empathy with sheer emotion. Empathy is foremost an intellectual operation, um, sort of identification with another person um, on a, on a uh, trial basis. So most important in this process is if we consider the other as equal to us, as a human being on eye level with us. So now, if we, if we apply this idea to memory culture and to the categorization of victims, we can easily see how political assumptions and, and structural racism are intertwined. Of course, this is most visible, uh, most easily visible in the neglected status of colonial victims. But how does it work precisely, I ask myself um, to write about in the book. So I compare uh, the German perception of Jewish resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto with the East African resistance against German colonial rule 40 years later at the beginning of the 20th century. In this so-called Maji Maji war, approximately 200,000 Africans died, either shot or starved. It was a desperate liberation struggle in a disastrously asymmetrical warfare. So why is the resistance in the Jewish ghetto enjoying so much respect and empathy, whereas the Majimachi liberation fight is of no interest at all and raising no respect, no empathy? I came to the conclusion that the contemporary German easily identifies with the fighting Jews but cannot identify with the fighting Africans. And this is for two reasons equating themselves with the Jewish victim is a strong, in general, a strong feature of this um, philosemitic German memory culture. So in general, Germans like to put themselves in the shoes of Jews as a way, you can say, to deal with, with suppressed feelings of guilt. In a harsh contrast, hardly anybody from the majority society can imagine him or herself being a colonized black person. So there is no equation possible, nothing at eye level at all. So the second aspect, whereas the picture of the Jew in German consciousness has changed substantially between the Nazi era and now, the picture of the American human being has not much changed between the colonial area and now. So now if we go again back to the comparison between uh, the Warsaw Ghetto and Maji Maji War, we see Africans are not considered to have a strong and principled desire for freedom, neither in the past or now. 200,000 of them dying in resistance has no meaning. Their desperate will to fight is not an object of admiration. Of course, we see the most striking contrast um, in regards um, to empathy between colonial victims and Holocaust victims, but um, we should not overlook that um, sim similar pattern applies to hierarchies, um, even among uh, Nazi victims. I take the example of Roma and Sinti. Um, they used to be very close to Jews in the Nazi ideology. Um, as well, um, they were considered a race which had to be exterminated entirely. But in remembrance culture, their status is much closer to African colonial victims. No voice, no respect. I call them in my book the non-missed victims, because they constitute nowadays the most discriminated minority in Europe. So also the suffering from the past has no meaning. So to conclude, um, the economy of 
empathy, as I call it, um, has also been structured by, by recent wars and uh, the treatment of victims from these wars. In particular, the victims of drone strikes in Afghanistan, considered to be collateral damage and, as I put it in my book, as neglectable lives. As if they had never existed was a common statement by um, relatives of these victims. So I argue that we have to repair the damage um, which this kind of Western policies has, has done to our own uh, consciousness and to our moral categories in order to be able to develop inclusive memory cultures. And uh, so to summarize, um, for me, the most important lesson of the Holocaust is that there is nothing like neglectable life. Therefore, I um, consider efforts to rescue refugees from drowning in the Mediterranean Sea um, as a model of a well understood new memory culture. Thank you so much for that. I think that's a very, very powerful opening statement. And it also really explains uh, this contrast in a way that can be easily grasped. Uh, but I also found that uh, you, you, you are able to cite a uh, numerous examples uh, in your book where there have been cross-referencing and also cross-fertilization uh, when it comes to the interpretation of racist violence, of colonialism and anti-Semitism, uh, of slavery and genocides. And one of the conclusions that has really stood out for me personally is that these discussions, discussions of the connections between Nazi and colonial history, and more specifically of Nazi and colonial violence, uh, are in fact nothing new, uh, right? Uh, there has been an awareness uh, that these histories share quite a lot, and also, of course, an awareness of how they might be distinguished analytically for quite a long time. Right. These days, they are often presented uh, as if as if, you know, thinking about these connections was something quite new, but that is clearly yeah, exactly. not the case. Right. And yeah. and that's, the that's drawing... very, very, very strange um, surprise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the drawing of such connections and comparisons uh, have been around for decades, as you show, but they are much more contested today. Right. So that's, I think, really, really interesting. But would you perhaps be willing to discuss some of the key examples of how the history of national socialism and that of global colonialism have been related to each other in the past? And what do you see as, as some of the uh, potentially fruitful approaches through which more solidarity could be fostered in these discussions, which are often very contentious, actually? Uh, well, these are really broad questions. Um... Um, well, in my book, I, I don't write that much about uh, debates, um, so debates from the past or debates from nowadays. I rather write about um, actual history and then of my findings um, in the societies uh, which have lived through these histories. Um, so I dedicate um, one whole chapter, and this might be surprising, to the colonial soldiers in, in World War II especially uh, the one million African colonial soldiers who fought under the French flag. Um, so I, I, I did this for several reasons. Um, firstly, World War II is until now in Europe not comprehensively understood because the fact that huge parts of the world were still under colonial rule is often excluded from the picture, and this is one of these bizarre behaviors that we exclude huge things from the picture. Um, so then, without the contribution of one million African soldiers, France um, had most likely not been among the victory nations of World War II. And now, even more, the fact that France until today is a permanent member of the UN Security Council illustrates how long lasting um, the impact of colonial domination is. Um, but now if we look um, on the societies and so we see that um, 
West Africans in particular, developed after World War II a memory culture of self-respect. And I underline the self-respect because, as I said, I mean, their history is almost entirely excluded so from our view and very often also from the history books. Uh, but they nevertheless developed a culture of self-respect. And this connected, this connected the war participation, their war participation, to the process of anti-colonial emancipation. Um, I interviewed uh, war veterans who told me how the respect they gained through their contribution to the liberation of Europe from Nazi rule impacted actually the first general strike of West African railroad workers. And this strike um, uh, was aiming at equal pay for black and white employees. So it was a um, historical um, event and a very important chapter, you can say, in, in, in a global social struggle. In Europe, until now, we have not yet learned to think the liberation from Nazi rule together with the liberation of the colonized subject. Um, and this is really, really an amazing failure. And um, I mean, often also pictures um, we have from the events, like from liberation of the concentration camps, only show white people because those, for example, um, Afro-American soldiers um, who were present at the event, um, they had to stood aside when the photographer came. Yes, as you said, um, uh, Ferenc, um, the limitations of, of, of the white European concept of universalism has, um, have already been discussed seven decades ago. And um, this is not surprising at all if you look at history. Um, parallel to the Nuremberg trials, European nations committed mass atrocities in their colonies, uh, for which the definition of crimes against humanity um, had been equally fitting. Um, in my book, I, 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 wrote, I write a little bit about Indonesia. And, um, in the year 1947, when the first issue of Anne Frank's diary was released in Amsterdam, the Dutch army annihilated the male population of entire villages in Indonesia in order to suppress the Indonesian anti-colonial struggle. So I think everything that is attributed um, as an outcome of the Holocaust to international law, institutions, conventions, etc., is, is deeply stained by, by double standards. And this is also true for the genocide convention, which um, has been measured in a way that it could not apply to colonial warfare um, of Europeans against civilians in the colonies. Um, with regards to this connecting dots between national socialism and colonialism, um, I think there is a huge gap between um, public memory culture and um, historical research of the last two decades. Um, the term Nazi colonialism has been used by historians um, for the last 20 years, but still causing kind of hiccup in memory culture. Um, I myself came across one fascinating example from the Wehrmacht language used in Eastern Europe. Um, they called um, the non-German auxiliary forces in extermination camps, which were, uh, who were sometimes Ukrainians, they called them Askari. And this is the same term which was used for the African auxiliary forces in colonial wars um, in the German East Africa. The word is Arabic by origin. Um, it just means soldier. And it came through Swahili in the colonial parlance and from there 
through the colonial nostalgia in Germany between the two world wars into the Wehrmacht um, parlance at Shoah sites in Eastern Europe. So I think um, if we start to unpack all these stories, um, uh, we, we, we already change, um, we, we already have some steps towards changing um, the mindset. Great. I think that's exactly what your book does, right? It's, it's full of, I think, very interesting observations. Uh, you suggest a number of very useful analytical categories, but much of this is also linked to your personal experience in the sense that you have traveled to these places and you also describe how seeing them, exploring them in detail and thinking about them have impacted you personally in a way. And that's also why I wanted to ask a slightly more uh, personal question next, also maybe uh, narrow the, uh, the subject a bit, right? We have, of course, started with rather uh, broad questions uh, today. And, you know, my sense was that, that you have a really quite critical uh, view on what we might call the dominant memory culture in today's Germany. And you certainly plead for more uh, pluralism and for more inclusiveness. And very importantly, you argue that Germans should somehow learn not to place themselves into the center of their own narratives all the time, right? And not to sort of make the world revolve around their own kind of story, uh, but rather to also try to observe a, a historical developments from the perspective of others, right? Also others who come from very different parts of the world. And one thing that really fascinated me, you know, reading, reading your book is that you have an autobiographical passage where you state that you personally consider the Shoah unique and that, and that you think that it's utter horror and, and in fact our utter inability to come to terms with it have, have really shaped you personally, right? This is something you make very clear as, as you write, but you also state, and this is, I think very interesting, that you have come to realize that this very strong conviction and this very deep conviction concerning uniqueness is the result of certain personal experiences and experiences that are of course embedded historically and so to say sociologically having to do with the fact that you were born uh, and raised uh, in Western Germany uh, in the post-war period. So having said all that, would you perhaps be willing to discuss uh, this process in some detail on a more personal level, level, that is to say how you came to be impacted and shaped by the memory of the Shoah? And then what triggered your reflections on your own positionality? And, and what motivated you then to personally argue so powerfully against attempts to create hierarchies of victims, right? Because that's one of the central, I think, arguments of the book that one should not think in such hierarchical fashion anymore. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm indeed, I think um, my book is written um, in a very personal way. It's also maybe you can consider it even a light of coming of age <laughs> um, with regards to um, the main issues of the book. Um, so I was born nine years after the liberation of Auschwitz. Um, and at some point in, uh, during my youth years, I, I realized that I live in this uncomfortable closeness to the perpetrator generation. Um, so I grew up like, I think the majority of my generation with the obdurate uh, silence of my parents um, including about my father's um, membership in the Nazi party. Um, they were both um, rather young, only in the midst of their 20s when the war was over, so they are not important perpetrators. But anyway, I was um, kind of groping the, um, the abyss beneath my, my Germanness rather early. Um, I remember a situation with my father when I was in my senior school years. I, I, I wanted to join a youth group traveling to the Soviet Union and had to get his, his permission for the trip. And my father replied, there is nothing to see there. It's all flat. Flat, he said. And I yelled at him and said, yes, after you guys were there. <laughs> um, so we never talked 
um, about this again. But I remember this, this as a crucial moment because um, uh, without thinking, very spontaneously, I addressed him not as an individual, I addressed him as a generation or perhaps more precisely as the male part of his generation. So sometime before he died, he confessed jokingly that he was a member of the NSDAP, the party, and that he had thrown his membership card into the drain after Hitler's defeat. So he talked about this as if it had been a joke. Um, everything which, which had to do with National Socialism be became like a second skin to me. Um, nothing else achieved this closeness in the long run. Mm. But then later, this intensely failed Germanist was combined with some decades of experience in the non-European world. You said already, I, was, I worked as a foreign reporter in Muslim countries and through stays in societies in West and East Africa, marked by their colonial experience. And also, I lived for some years, I think you didn't mention this, in Southeast Asia, uh, where the image of the Second World War um, is marked by the Japanese occupation. And uh, I remember a moment when I, when I tried to talk uh, with some Malaysian friends and acquaintances um, about the Holocaust. And I said something about Jews and they replied instantly um, how their grandparents were tortured, uh, their, their grandfathers were tortured by the Japanese. And I thought, well, this is not the same. How can they say this? So this was my state of mind um, maybe three decades ago. Um, I looked on things very much from the European and German perspective. Mm. Um, and also uh, what changed my mind, I think also profoundly was um, friendship and love with people who look on us Europeans from elsewhere. So all this um, motivated the research movement and long which this book was written. And uh, it has emerged from a kind of inner dialogue um, out of two great personal concerns that we as Germans, um, the old Germans like me, in the way of um, that our families <laughs> um, have been living in Germany for a long time, as well as new Germans with migrational background, so that we keep National Socialism close to us with sensitivity and, and, and care and concern. But secondly, that may we as Europeans overcome this wide way of thinking about history and uh, that we become aware of the effects of colonial violence. Um, so in other words, keep the responsibility for the Nazi crimes, but on the basis of a changed understanding of the world oriented towards respect participation. So um, regarding the singularity, um, yes, I, I um, it was quite difficult for me to write this parts of the book and I changed certain pages again and again, because I was still in the process of um, coming to terms with, with um, my own way of thinking and with some aspects which came always to me from the debate around me. Um, I choose um, the way to say that for me personally, um, the, the term singularity carries um, um, emotions, carries um, kind of um, indebtedness perhaps, um, which I found appropriate. But this is a personal feeling. I know very well that singularity um, is not a scientific term. You can call it a theological term or psychological term. It's not science, as some people think. So um, I uh, argue in my book that, especially towards the German audience, that maybe everybody should reflect about this question as I did, and then come to his personal conclusion. So I argue strongly against um, uh, using the singularity thesis as a dogma. And this means I argue strongly against uh, 
what is considered nowadays still to be the, the reigning um, memory or the reigning uh, way um, in which way it is um, accepted to discuss things. So in short, I think um, the Shoah is a tragedy of a special significance, but this significance must not be used to degrade other sufferings. Um, I think it would be even a violation of the most important message of the Shoah to do this. And I also argue that Germans um, must learn that in a globalized world and also in an immigration society, people look at the extermination of Jews from different angles and also they look at Israel from different angles. Uh, thank you so much for that. I think these are really great ideas also in terms of how and why a more anti-dogmatic uh, attitude and approach uh, might be needed. Uh, and I should perhaps say that, you know, I come from a generation, uh, you know, having been born uh, just before uh, 1989 in, in Eastern Europe and, and having grown up with an idea uh, that Germany has found uh, a very profound a way of dealing with its own uh, terrible past. And, you know, there was, it's probably not an accident that Hungarian writer uh, Peter Esterhazy uh, flippantly, uh, one should say, called uh, Germany uh, the Weltmeister, the Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, so the, the world champion in, in dealing with the past in the late 1990s when I was actually a, a teenager. And uh, for somebody like me, you know, who, who grew up with this idea that there's really a, a very serious and very profound grappling uh, with the past in Germany, it comes as quite a surprise how, how difficult uh, some, of, some of this has become uh, in Germany and, and how how problematic uh, some how, how problematic some things seem uh, today, and I wanted us to talk about that a, a bit more, uh, because I think I, uh, yes, friend, friend, I just want want to add something because you were referring to your own experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think we should not overlook that um, this um, appraised German memory culture um, had different phases mm -hmm. phases into in terms of of time now um, and. Um, I mean, if we look at at the years, let's say uh, the 70s and the 80s, uh, we see a lot of progressive impetus. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the memory culture was was. I mean, uh, it was a process of struggling very often against um, against uh, majorities of societies, also of of certain urban societies. So to put through with with the um, with the wish to commemorate also local local um, atrocities and, and, and to set up local commemorative sites. So all this had a very progressive tendency, but then we have um, more or less with unification um, of the two Germans, we see that we had this nationalization of the memory culture and it was now more put in use to, to show to the world outside and especially to former victim countries that now this is a new Germany, etc. We opened the doors for the post-Soviet Jews, but why? Because also this was nice for Germany to show now we have more Jews again. Um, so I think over a process of maybe 20, 25 years, um, we see that memory culture has changed a little bit its nature and, uh, but still nowadays, um, I think um, we should not over-criticize it. I think it's, um, it's still good, um, certainly also in these times of historical revisionism, that um, state officials say, yes, all this was committed by Germans. And they don't say in the German name or whatever was, <laughs> how it was, um, mm -hmm how it was talking about before. Um, but still, um, the character of memory culture has changed substantially, yes. Right, right. I, I very much agree with that. I think part of the problem was in post-communist Eastern Europe, uh, if I may add to that, 
uh, is that, so to say, this more uncritical or sort of uh, self-praising narrative about German achievements was mm -hmm. often taken at face value. And in fact, the, the very contentious process, the, the, the change from below, the, the more progressive aspects were in a way merged uh, with the state's ambition to control uh, this narrative and then and then to show uh, mm -hmm. how Germany has maybe done better than other countries, which certainly wasn't uh, the case at all for the longest time, right? So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very aware of that, and I, th I think it's excellent uh, that, that, that you have uh, pointed uh, that out. But exactly, I think you're very right that one should, of course, also not, now that we see some of the dark sides uh, of this or some of the darker consequences, uh, we should also not forget about the achievements. I very much, I very much agree with that. Uh, but you know, coming to maybe to the present, you know, one thing that people have, I think, increasingly often pointed out, is that the German state tends to have a really uncritical attitude. At least the official attitude is really uncritical uh, towards the state of Israel, and uh, that also implies uh, that the German uh, public sphere also seems to have great difficulties uh, to merely accept a different perspective and especially of course the perspective from the Palestinians. So Palestinian voices and perspectives are very often and very quickly and often unjustly labeled and excluded and, and, and there have been numerous I think controversies and, and, and smaller or bigger scandals around this issue just in recent years and what we have also seen I think and again growingly is that there is some kind of attack, attack on Jewish uh, dissidents precisely around these kinds of issues, right? So when it comes to uh, having more critical perspectives towards the state of Israel, it seems that even uh, Jewish voices uh, don't quite find acceptance in some of the German uh, uh, public discussions. And I think that is something that that is really very different from, from what we're used to in a sense, right? So if you go back uh, 10 or 20 years, I mm -hmm. think a lot of people back then would have been very surprised uh, to see uh, how this looks uh, at the moment. So I wanted us to talk a bit about that and uh, perhaps you could comment on how you see the position, but also the chances uh, of Palestinian voices and Palestinian memory uh, in the German uh, discussions. You know, how could Germany uh, deal with uh, this, this history uh, in, in a much more meaningful way? And you have, of course, written about this also more recently. I've, I've, I've seen a recent article by you, um, and 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 whether you could maybe also say a few words about how you how you would interpret these current forms uh, of Jewish dissent, which are really often focusing on policies of the state of Israel, and how that is then received uh, in contemporary Germany. Yeah, I think this is a very important um, question, and I, I I devoted a whole chapter. Um, to the question of um, Jewish um, descent and um, uh, what I call the German desire towards um, Israel. Um, and at the moment now, uh, French, as we, as we speak, we have um, again a very heated debate in Germany with a lot of unpleasant um, uh, features. Um, and um, I think one can summarize that as an impact of the more and more right-wing Israeli um, politics, um, spaces for a fruitful discussion about Israel-Palestine have become more and more narrow um, in Germany. Um, uh, so anti-Semitism is routinely conflated with anti-Zionism and uh, the special obligation Germany has to Jews has, um, you mentioned already, has developed more and more into an unconditional loyalty to Israel's policies. Um, and again, then non-regarding that these policies moved more and more to the right. So one consequence is that Palestinian voices are often excluded um, from let's say, the serious public discourse, um, allegedly to prevent anti-Semitism. So um, they can only express themselves um, like in, on the street in demonstrations, but recently also uh, when there was um, the anniversary of the Nakba, the expulsion of um, Palestinians um, in the moment when the Israeli state was founded, um, like in my city in Berlin, all demonstrations were 
beforehand prohibited for a whole weekend. So all demonstrations from Palestinians. This is democratically very obscure, but there was not much public criticism. Um, and also Jews who are critical of Israel's occupation policy or of the um, ethno-national character of the state are accused of anti-Semitism. Um, for myself, I mean, I had 10 years ago, I could not have imagined that this is possible. But now at least <laughs> it happens again and again. And, and still we have nowadays again around this um, art event of Documenta, we have a lot of discussions where uh, certain critical groups are again and again um, excused either of anti-Semitism or of closeness to anti-Semitism. So, um, so in one way or the other, memory culture is turned into a weapon against critical voices and um, against minorities with different worldviews. Mm. Um, I mean, also, this is for me as an author or journalist or intellectual, this is a very difficult situation in my country. Um, so to find out of this um, poisoned and toxic um, atmosphere of debates, um, I tried one path, I, I, I argue in my book and also did this uh, recently in a newspaper, that we should open um, the memory culture for Palestinian narratives about the history, about their history. And um, I was kind of inspired by um, the US historian Michael Rothberg's um, book, The Implicated Subject. And um, I argue uh, that we, the Germans of today, we are implicated um, in the Palestinian tragedy because without European anti-Semitism and without the Shoah, the state of Israel has not been founded that way and under these conditions. So I argue that we are implicated and that is again um, an argument so to open memory culture for Palestinian narratives, Palestinian voices. Let's see what happens. Yes, these are, I think, very important points. Uh, and I'm glad you also uh, mentioned uh, Michael Rothberg's uh, new book, The Implicated Subject. I think probably there's really a lot of similarities between your approach and his, which we could discuss uh, much further. Uh, but I wanted us to talk a bit about, so to say, the positive uh, side uh, in closing. This has been a really fascinating and I think very rich uh, discussion. Uh, and one may thing I, may that I you... Just, uh, yes. May I just want to, want to throw in a word because you... you um, you mentioned Michael Rothberg. One interesting outcome of this heated and, and toxic debates are that people who have um, another approach and you want uh, to, 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 to develop this inclusive memory culture, um, put their own differences now um, more aside. So I, I, for example, I recently had some long discussions so with so with Dirk Moses, who was also on your show, um, I think mm -hmm. last, last year. And um, exactly. I have a strong criticism against this vocabulary of catechism, um, which he applies. But, but still, I mean, in this, in this very difficult situation nowadays, we are discovered that we have very much in common and we started to support, to support each other in, in, in terms of public statements or so. So this is, um, I just want to want to add this. Also, Michael Rothberg is at the moment, he is in Berlin and um, in a way, everybody's getting closer. <laughs> yes, exactly. But of course, this is, I think, should be seen uh, in connection with what you started from, that the spaces are in a way becoming narrower, right? Yes. So of course, it's yeah. in a way yeah. also, also exactly. form of- Exactly, <laughs> that's, that's you, you, you put it brilliantly because we are getting closer because the spaces are getting narrower, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And, and, and this is the scary thing. But I think one thing you also do in the book, and that's, I think, a very important dimension, is that you're, you're in a way sketching a very attractive utopia. It's a utopia of transcultural encounters uh, that would take place on the basis of equality, and that could foster uh, a much more pluralistic and also much more inclusive 
a cosmopolitan memory, as, as you call it at some point. And this would, this would also be linked to reviving anti-fascism, you know, not as a kind of, you know, a official a doctrine, but really as a powerful societal practice. Yeah. And you, you, you point to the fact that um, European and Western forms of dominance, you know, and these forms of dominance have really uh, resulted in, in much exclusion, also violence, and, and also the inequality of empathy that has characterized uh, also recent uh, years. And that, again, I think, I think you, you showed very, very nicely uh, in your first response how we can, how we can grasp what this uh, inequality of empathy uh, really means and, 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 and how it manifests uh, also in our own ways of thinking, right? That these are also being challenged and they are challenged ever more, not least because we live in an increasingly interconnected world, right? People uh, have, are moving between places. And of course the internet <laughs> is, is of course a big uh, connector uh, of various people across uh, the globe. So I was wondering whether you could perhaps uh, sketch a bit, you know, what would be that more uh, globally sensitive and much more egalitarian memory regime uh, that, 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 that you desire and that, and, and that you plead for in the book. And what, what would be some of the kind of more concrete positive uh, developments in recent years that actually point the way towards the development of such a more pluralistic and such a more inclusive memory? Yeah, I, I, I first would like to mention that um, in spite of some hostility I mentioned against certain positions, um, I, um, I maintain uh, so far uh, the reception of my book was rather friendly. Um, friendlier than I had expected. Um, uh, I also got on one list for the best nonfiction books in the summer also. So um, we can take this as an indicator that um, there is a mind altering process on its way, at least in some parts of society, which I'll, I would like to call in a very unpolitical way, the good willing people. Um, those who, who have started to think about um, developments in a, in a new way and often don't come to their own conclusions, but they are, they are interested in also in getting um, inspiration like from my book. Um, the German government has recently restituted art objects to Nigeria and uh, the mutual agreement uh, states the necessity of uh, I quote, new, a new ethic of relations. And this is a vocabulary from which comes from post-colonial initiatives and artists, and it has now entered, to my knowledge for the first time, a federal state document. Um, so I think um, we have a very mixed picture. I mean, apart from a lot of resistance against progressive history policies. Um, one important thing has changed, um, and that is the German immigration society has abandoned this dangerous idea of homogeneity. And this opens the door to a lot of new understandings. And it also opens the door, or, and it has already opened it to, yes, you mentioned what I call the new Antifascism, which um, is very different from this, um, uh, I call this a self-satisfactory sitting culture of the of the old um, memory um, uh, culture events, um, and now we have um, uh, new groups, often from partly from migrational background. Um, which are founded at the sites of um, right-wing um, hate crimes. And uh, they consider memory to be a disturbance. So they don't want, want to have it as the um, established memory culture that we can all be quiet and relieved because we have this fantastic so-called Vergangenheitsbewältigung, but very um, opposite, they say memory is, means disturbance. And uh, so this is a new way of being, uh, of developing anti-fascism of the 21st century. And these groups, um, for these groups, it's action 
and um, it's need. It's not just a word. It's need and it, it is action. Um, on the global level, I, there is still a huge imbalance. Um, the prestige of, of Holocaust memory, uh, supported by innumerable institutions in the Western world, um, causes the desire to, to attach other grievances and sufferings to this label. So in order to benefit somehow a bit from the prestige of Holocaust memory. Um, which is always sometimes um, a rather um, a disturbing um, attitude. But at the same time in Europe, I mean, maybe I don't have to tell you as an Hungarian, um, Holocaust remembrance is getting more and more fragile through um, historical revisionism. So we are witnessing this uh, these these days, in particular, in particular, um, uh, after the um, Russian invasion of of Ukraine, and whatever are the ideological fallouts, um, Putin is the new Hitler. This is now stated by people who were before using the singularity thesis as a weapon against the inclusion of remembrance for colonial victims. Um, so. In all, I think um, this is a very unstable situation and it's very difficult um, to, uh, to tell where the development of, of memory culture and um, or broader historical perceptions will go throughout the next years, not to talk about decades, but even throughout the next years. So I see, um, I see very progressive um, um, steps but i also see the contrary that we go back thank you so much for that i should say i very much agree with that i don't think the situation has been nearly as uncertain in recent decades as it is as it is today i think there are many new coalitions which may not have existed just a few years ago for better and for worse and you know new constellations which we don't fully understand yet but I think your new book, Den Schmerz der Anderen Begreifen, uh, to comprehend and recognize the pain of others is an excellent way to also reflect on this in a global perspective and also to realize how many perspectives we may not have taken seriously enough in the past and how we should take them much more seriously in the future. I think it's a fascinating read. I can recommend it to everybody who's interested in these kinds of subjects. Thank you so much for being on the show, Charlotte, today. Thank you very much to you. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. Until the next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.